morning, good morning. Go ahead and grab a seat. Wrap up that four-minute conversation. We're going to get started here with our time of teaching. Great to see you all here. Um, I love that, that uh, your guys' attitude doesn't match the dreary weather of outside. It's so rainy and cloudy, but you guys are like all happy and chatty. That's great. Yeah, welcome to Sedaris. My name's Ryan. If you brought your Bible, go ahead and pull it out. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 8. That's where we're going to be. We're going to be in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is in the Old Testament. That's the first two-thirds of your Bible, and it is one of the prophets. So it comes after the book of Psalms. Um, it takes up a lot of pages. It's a really long book there. So turn over to that. If you didn't bring a Bible, we have some place down at the ends of the rows so that you can uh, have a copy of what we'll be working through so turn over to Isaiah chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, those are actually free. They're gifts as well, so you can take that home with you. And if you can't find Isaiah chapter 8, there's no shame in using the table of contents in order to find it. Here at Sedaris, uh, like Dave uh, mentioned, we are leaning into the season of Advent with the greater global church and the greater historic church, which has observed uh, the season of Advent in the weeks leading up uh, to Christmas, which should lead to a very reasonable question. What is Advent? What is Advent? Well, Advent is just a, a fancy Latin word that means the coming. It means the coming. And here at Sedaris, we love fancy Latin words. And so we're leaning into this uh, season of Advent. But that might, might lead to another uh, question that goes like this. So, so you're telling me that the season of Advent um, is the weeks in uh, the month of December, the weeks leading up to Christmas, that's the Christmas season. Why don't we just call it the Christmas season like everybody else? Why are we making a big fuss over this fancy Latin word? Is it really just to be fancy? And that's a very reasonable and a very good question. But we use the season or the word and uh, the word Advent to talk about this season because the coming of Jesus actually has a twist in it. It actually has a, a pretty big significant twist in it. You see, Jesus, when he came the first time, his first advent, his first coming, was largely in obscurity. He was uh, born in, in an obscure barn. He was born in a small, obscure village south of Jerusalem. He was born to relatively obscure parents. Uh, Mary and Joseph were probably nothing more than just peasants. So he has very, very obscure origins, uh, Jesus says. He actually just arrived in obscurity. And, and so uh, this is where it's helpful that we have this, um, this twist that comes into it. Because this obscurity was, it, it was so obscure. Um, put, I'll, I'll put it this way. Uh, everybody went to bed the night that Jesus was born, okay? And they woke up the next day as if nothing had happened whatsoever. As if nothing, it was just a, a, it was just a Tuesday, I don't know if Jesus was born on Monday night, but it's just another Tuesday to these people. The, the, the God of the universe came into the world and virtually nobody noticed. Well, I, if you read the gospel accounts, there's a few things that happen, you know, so a couple shepherds show up. But relatively, uh, babies come into the world today with far more um, importance and meaning. Uh, think of uh, the latest baby born to the royalty in Great Britain. I think his name's George, Prince George. Everybody knew, no, is that right? Someone just shook their head. I think I might have got his name wrong. <laughs> but I think his name's George. I'm pretty sure, maybe there's another one since. But the first one was George. Okay, this is a while ago. Um, 
I actually saw um, Owen Daniel, uh, Dave's baby, hours after he was born. I got a picture texted to me. It was really nice, you know? Uh, but Jesus showed up with virtually no noteworthiness whatsoever. In obscurity, Jesus showed up. To the, God showed up to this world in obscurity. Um, but this is actually what's very interesting is because Jesus actually said um, at several points during his ministry that he was going to come back and his second coming is going to look very different than his first coming. Okay, this is one of the ways that he put it. This is actually when he was on trial um, in, in front of the Jewish leaders the night before he was crucified. It was a, a dialogue that's preserved for us. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? A lot of people were falsely accusing him of things and Jesus wasn't answering. But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, Jesus said, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. Okay, so, so this is what Jesus said was going to happen. This term, uh, son of man, that you see there, was, it, it, it was a Jewish apocalyptic term, and it still is a, very, a Jewish apocalyptic term of the coming Messiah of God, this coming promise, King in Christ for Israel. And Jesus says, I am that person, and I'm going to come back, and it's going to look, uh, I'm going to come on the, coming on the clouds of heaven. Elsewhere um, in the gospel accounts, he says that he would uh, come on the clouds in power and in great glory and majesty, okay? So we have to, so let's contrast both of these advents. The first advent, um, Jesus came clothed in uh, baby goo, just regular old baby goo, okay? I've, I've been present at a few births myself, uh, baby goo. Or, or maybe you could say uh, he was clothed in whatever um, rags that his peasant uh, parents wrapped around him. Okay? In his second coming, he's going to be clothed in glory and majesty and power. You see that? And in his uh, first uh, coming, and in his first coming, what's going to happen is, uh, uh, well, in his first coming, what happened is nobody saw it, save a few shepherds. His second coming, everybody is going to see it. You see that? His, his first coming, he came... Um, to, to live and to serve and to teach and to die. His second coming, he will come to reign and rule in majesty and start his kingdom. Okay, so we have these two uh, different uh, advents, and that's why we use this word advent, because there's a big twist to the advent, and it's that we have two of them, okay? Baby Jesus is just half the story, and so um, as we get closer and closer and closer and closer to 1225, that's Christmas Day, we'll talk more and more and more about baby Jesus and the first coming, but up to that point, we're going to also be looking forward to the second advent of Jesus, the one that he promised where he would come again and reign in full, okay? And in order to do that, what, we actually are gonna, what you actually have to do is you have to look at the Old Testament prophets, because the Old Testament prophets are where the majority of the, of the information surrounding Christ's advent, come, advent comes from. Okay, so that's interesting. It's actually not from the eyewitness accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where we get the majority of our information about the coming of Jesus. Actually, the majority of the information is found in the Old Testament prophets. Okay, well, what is a prophet? What, what, what's a prophet? Well, a prophet was just someone who spoke for God. 
The prophets were just people who spoke for God. So in the ancient uh, kingdom of, of Israel, you had the king who sat on the throne and they had wise advisors. And then you had these prophets. And the prophets uh, would speak to uh, the king exactly uh, what God said. So there's primarily two roles that these prophets had. The first one was to instruct the king on God's evaluation of the, the present affairs that were going on in the geopolitical nation of Israel, within the people of Israel, um, and then also within the king's own heart. We see the prophets speaking God's word to those situations, interpreting them in full, okay? And then if the king didn't listen to the prophet's words, the prophet would kick into its second, uh, his or her second function, which would be to long for the king that God had promised that would come to earth, that would listen to his word, that would remain faithful to God. And as a result, his faithfulness in obeying God's word would lead to uh, the fruitfulness and the flourishing of God's people, Okay. Okay, so, so in our season of Advent, we, we both look back at Jesus, but then we're also looking forward along with the prophets at a time when this future king will come in full, uh, be fully um, obedient and listening to the word of God so that his people can flourish. That's what uh, Advent is all about. Isaiah could only look forward, okay? Now, so we, we see that they look forward, and I just said that they look forward for this Messiah, Christ, King, that will be uh, beautiful and allow the people to flourish. And, and that, that's really what they looked for, and we can see them looking for that. But what's more interesting than what they looked for, that's Jesus, being on this side of the cross, we know that they were looking for Jesus. Uh, what's more interesting in the object that, than the object for which they looked is the, the state of being or the manner in which they looked and longed for that Christ, that Messiah. So on one hand, we can look at what they looked for, that's the Messiah King. On the other hand, we can look for what they longed in, that is, what is the state of being? What, what did it actually look like for them to, to look forward to this future king? And that's actually what our sermon series is more based on. It's more based on what does it actually look like to long for Jesus today? What, is, what does that actually look like, like tangibly in front of us? What does that actually look like? Okay, and so uh, we're going to do three uh, sermons all about what that longing actually look like, looks like, okay? And today, um, that, uh, our sermon is called Longing in Hope. We long in hope, and Isaiah is going to show us how we do that, Okay. Um, let me give you an illustration to kind of illustrate what this looks like, okay? So um, on Monday this week, I picked up my daughter Lucy from the Boys and Girls Club, and she goes into, um, really it's an argument of persuasion that she does at several points in times when I pick her up from the Boys and Girls Club, and it goes like this. Daddy, can Emma come home with us and have a play date, okay? Play dates are the lifeblood of a kindergartner, let me tell you. They, they, they love playdates, okay? And um, each and every time she does this, I, uh, I tell her no, and I try to tell her why, and I, I pretty much try to sidestep it, because I don't know the social norms for arranging playdates with other parents, you know? Um, uh, she's our firstborn, she's in kindergarten now, and so 
Uh, I think there's social norms for like how you approach a conversation. I'm just nervous to do it, essentially. You know what I mean? Like, and, and so, uh, if, I mean, I got asked to the junior prom, if that tells me anything. So my first shot at prom, I got asked, okay? I'm just not, just not so good at social norms, okay? Um, anyways, but uh, on this occasion, Emma's mom showed up at the same time. And so uh, Lucy is like, great. All the parties are present here that we need in order to make this happen. And so she makes us talk about having a play date. And so we eventually uh, arrange it for uh, the next Monday. That's tomorrow. Okay, that, that's tomorrow. So we have a play date for tomorrow. Lucy is stoked. Um, but here's what happened 24 hours later. I, I pick Lucy up just like normal. We get home. Uh, we start making dinner. And Lucy goes over into uh, one of our chairs. And she gets really small and hunches over. And she gets really sad. And for any of you who know my daughter, she does not disengage if there's people around, okay? If you've been up there teaching her in the room, if there's a human in her vicinity, she will engage that human and demand that that human engages her, okay? So when I see Lucy go into a chair and get really small and sad, I know something's wrong. So I go over to Lucy and I say, hey, Lucy, what's going on, babe? And she looks up at me with the biggest little pouty eyes and starts crying. And she says, I just wish Emma was here right now with us. She's so sad about this. And so I comforted her, you know, and I said, oh, don't worry, it'll come soon. It'll come faster than you think it will. But, but we all know what Lucy was longing for. She's longing for her play date with Emma. But what was she longing in? She's longing in sadness at that moment. And she's longed in excitement in other ways too. But in that moment, she's longing in sadness, Okay. So, so that's, what the, that's what we're focusing on today, because um, to God, the object in which we hope for, or the object for which we long for, is just as important as the manner or the quality that we long in. Okay, the object is just as important as that which we long in to God. Both are very important to him, so we're going to be talking about the latter during this season of Advent, Okay. All right, so how do we long for Jesus? Each, each, each week we're going to take a different um, aspect of that. Today we're going to long in hope because uh, Isaiah in the middle of chapter 8 talks about how his longing for this coming Messiah King ultimately was in hope, ultimately was in hope, okay? All right, so in order to see this, uh, I'm going to have to set the scene for you because Isaiah is an Old Testament prophet and these are closely tied to actual geopolitical things that were going on in Israel, okay? Um, and so at this point when we're reading Isaiah 8, Isaiah 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11 were all written at a single time uh, in Israel's history and that was about 200 years after King Solomon died, okay? 200 years ago, King Solomon died. Um, he was the third king of Israel. His father, David, was the second king of Israel. Uh, David is uh, seen as the greatest king of Israel who followed God with his whole heart. Um, and his son, uh, Solomon, is uh, known as the wisest king of Israel. Uh, much of the wisdom literature is ascribed to him. He, he wrote the book of Proverbs. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes is uh, ascribed to him. Nations from all around the world came to sit in, in Solomon's court and, and listen to him judge and wisdom. It was so amazing. Um, Israel also had a lot of power in this time, and so they were probably brown-nosing a little bit too. Okay? But uh, so he, I, Solomon's known as the wisest king. He's also known as the biggest lover, uh, probably, that there ever was. Uh, he wrote the book of Song of Solomon 
which is all about the love that exists, the romantic love that exists between a man and a woman. It's a little racy to read even, but it is in the Bible. And it's actually this, this um, love of women that got Solomon into trouble. Um, his many, many wives, actually, uh, God issued a judgment on this desire of his heart and said, because of your many wives, I'm going to take the kingdom away from your son. Okay? So uh, Solomon dies, and then his son comes to reign. His, his, his name is Rehoboam, and he is not a wise king at all. Um, he didn't read uh, the book of Proverbs that his father wrote for him. It's addressed to his sons. Um, and, and so what happens is the, the kingdom of Israel, it, it splinters. It splinters into two factions. Um, ten tribes uh, form uh, uh, the, the nation of Israel. They assume, uh, they continue on with the name Israel, and they're in the north, and their capital is Samaria, and they instate their own king. Uh, that's the northern kingdom. And then uh, the southern kingdom is the two remaining tribes that are left over. That's Judah and Benjamin. Um, Benjamin was uh, so small at this point in history that they just uh, kind of get absorbed into Judah um, at this point, And so they just go by the name of Judah. This is the southern kingdom. Their capital remains in Samaria. Okay? And so Isaiah is writing 200 years after, <clears throat> excuse me, after this kingdom split. Isaiah is writing 200 years into really this tragic experiment of the split, okay? And, and what is uh, interesting here is what's going on in chapter 7 goes like this, okay? The northern kingdom, well, Judah, the southern kingdom, has just experienced a time of great prosperity, and the northern kingdom looks down and is like, man, they have a lot of stuff. We'd really like that stuff. <laughs> Let's go raid them and get it. And so, but then they realize, you know, we probably don't have enough people to do that very successfully. And so they look over and they say, Syria, it's a neighboring nation. Hey, Syria, look at all this stuff down here. Maybe uh, we can get together and we can raid uh, all of Judah, uh, get rid of their king, put our own king there. We'll take all of their stuff. And then because it's uh, proven to be such a uh, plentiful uh, place, and very profitable, um, we can just exact taxes from this kingdom uh, henceforth, okay? And so this is the situation, the crisis that Isaiah 7 starts in. If you actually want to flip the page over, we can look at it together, okay? It says it, says it right here, in the days of Ahaz, this is verse 1, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, um, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. All right, we got Syria and the northern kingdom coming down, knocking on the door of the southern kingdom. Verse 2, when the house of David was then, or when the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, that's just another name for the northern kingdom, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Okay? So in chapter 7, we see that God told Isaiah, this is what um, occupies the rest of chapter 7, God told Isaiah that, hey, I'm going to show up and I'm going to defend the southern kingdom against this incoming raid. I'm going to do it. And so Isaiah, faithful to what prophets did um, in, in their function, he goes to the king, King Ahaz, and he says, hey, God's going to defend us. But here's the thing about King Ahaz. King Ahaz is 20 years old. Now, if you're thinking that is not nearly old enough to uh, rule an empire, 
Um, in fact, we have people who are far older than that ruling here in the United States, and sometimes theirs doesn't even work out that well. You'd be absolutely right. Uh, Ahaz uh, just learned how to drive a car a few years ago. He's like trying to figure out how to balance his studies and do his laundry at the same time, right? Like he's too young to be king, but nevertheless, he's there, okay? And so there's a crisis that comes along here. And this is what Ahaz does when he sees this crisis. He looks to his neighbor, Assyria. That's Syria, except with an A-S on the front of it. It can get confusing. But so he looks to Assyria and says, hey, I'm about to be raided. Could you help me out? And the king of Assyria says, absolutely, let's do this. And so when Isaiah shows up and says, hey, God will defend you. God will defend you. You're not going to have to do anything but just sit here and watch God defend you. Ahaz is like, eh, I'd rather go with my own plan. (laughs) So this continues on in chapter 7, so much so that God says, okay, go back to King Ahaz and tell him that I will perform a sign. I will perform a sign. Whatever he wants me to do, I will do it miraculously so that he knows that I will indeed show up. Because every time I say that I will show up for my people, I do. So Isaiah goes back and says, hey, Ahaz, ask God for a sign that he can do it so you can know that he'll defend you. And Ahaz says, no thanks. That's a paraphrase. But he says, no, I'd, I'd rather not. I've got my plan going on right here, all right? And so then in the first half of, uh, first half of chapter 8, God tells Isaiah that because Ahaz will not rely on him, that the king of Syria, of Assyria, who's going to come to Ahaz's help, is eventually going to raid Judah himself. He looks a little bit into the future and he sees that, okay? And so this is what we have up to this point. We have a crisis, a need for help, an opportunity to trust God that's rejected, a deal cut with the king of Assyria, and then the prophecy that this alliance of Assyria will turn into an even bigger crisis. The king of Assyria will in turn enslave Judah, and it's into this experience today that our passage speaks, okay? Okay, so our passage here starts in verse 11 of chapter 8, and Isaiah does something that's very, very helpful for us. I'm going to tell you about it before we dive into it so you can see it as we read it. Um, He lays out two ways that people live their lives, okay? The first way is represented by King Ahaz and and kind of what we talked about him doing, um, looking at his own plans and and not accepting God's defense. Uh, The first way is represented by him and his followers, And the second way is actually represented by Isaiah himself and his followers. Isaiah wasn't just a lone wolf. He actually had a lot of followers whom he called uh, disciples himself. Two of them actually show up in the first couple verses of chapter 8. But we have these two ways that are contrasted here, okay? Uh, The way of Ahaz and his followers, the way of Isaiah and his followers, okay? So let's read it together now. All right. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy what this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. 
Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. Now he's going to talk about his way. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, that's the southern kingdom, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upwards. And they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. All right. A little bit of gloom and doom there at the end. But we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later. But, did, but you saw the way of Isaiah and his followers, right? It was right there in the middle in verses 16 and 17. He says, I will wait for the Lord who's hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. See that? Isaiah is saying that in contrast to Ahaz, he will hope in God. He will wait and he will hope. Well, what does that actually mean? What does that actually mean, okay? So let's start to unpack this, unpack this a little bit. Um, let me give you a good definition of, of hope that someone told me a few years ago. It goes like this, okay? Um, hope is the knowledge of a future reality that gives you energy today. It's knowledge of a future reality that gives you energy today. It, it's not wishful thinking. Um, hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is not stubborn optimism. It's actually knowledge of a future reality that gives you energy today. Think of it like this. Uh, it, picture yourself, thought exercise, thought experiment. Picture yourself working at your desk Thursday afternoon at 3.30. It's the worst part of my week, okay? It's the hardest section for me to work through every week. Thursday afternoon, 3.30 p.m., picture yourself there, okay? Now picture yourself there again, except Friday night, you leave on a week-long vacation to Europe. Those two Thursday afternoons are very, very different, are they not? They're very, very different because on one of them, you have the hope of a future reality that's going to that's gonna crop up in your life, and it's giving you energy today to get everything done as best as you can to line up Friday so you can just knock Friday out and get out of that office early. Am I right? This is what hope is. This is what hope is. It is a, is a, a future reality that provides energy today, okay? And, and so this tells us, uh, and, and so for Isaiah, he had received God's word that one day a future king would come to Israel that'd be way better than Ahaz, that would actually rely on God to defend him and his people, and his people would flourish as a result. And it was, a, it was the knowledge of this future reality that gave him the energy he needed to long in hope to long in hope, to get through the coming dark, dark time of Israel's history, okay? It was that knowledge that empowered him to long in hope. And, and so this tells us something uh, very interesting when it comes to the Christian hope, okay? Uh, when we're talking about hope as the knowledge of a future reality um, that provides energy to act in a certain way today, what we need is faith in that certain future reality, right? 
If we don't have faith in it, it really can't give us energy today. Or you could even say that we need to trust that that future reality is going to take place. And if we're going to lean into or trust knowledge for the future to get energy today, we need to have faith in that knowledge of the future. But, but we're not talking about vague in some vague sense. It's actually more helpful uh, to look at real events, okay? So we're actually going to look at this through um, Ahaz here in his situation, in his situation that, that Israel experienced 200 years after the death of King Solomon. But we do that because um, in the Old Testament, Israel is a microcosm of humanity, okay? It's a, it's a microcosm of all of humanity, okay? Now, a, a microcosm is just something in miniature, that encapsulates the features of the broader whole, right? And so anytime we see a character or Israel go through something, we actually ask two questions to help us apply that microcosm to all of us, okay? And so th this will help you in any uh, study that you do of the Bible. Here are those two questions. I'll, I'm going to say them for you. Uh, the first question is, what is the bigger lesson about humanity that God is trying to teach us? What's the bigger lesson about humanity that God's trying to teach us? And second, how does this lesson ultimately point us to his son, Jesus? All right, so for Ahaz, it went like this. For Ahaz, trusting God meant more than just a general belief in God, okay? No doubt he had this general belief in God. He was king of um, the theocracy of Israel, of the southern kingdom of Judah. He was king. He, without a doubt, believed in God. And he, uh, and honestly, the, the kingdom of Judah was far more faithful to God than its northern neighbor. It kind of gets that reputation. But trusting God meant more than a general belief in God. It meant more than a belief for Ahaz than um, God is good, more than a belief that God was for him, or even the belief that God will save him, okay? It meant trusting God with a particular thing, and in this case, it was to defend Ahaz against the coming raid, okay? Now, now when we hear trust God, we, we can usually conjure up some vague feeling of confidence that God is for us, but in Ahaz's situation, trust was something far more than this vagueness, isn't it? Far more than vague confidence. He had to take real steps of obedience that would cause him to actually be in a situation where God would have to come through for him, Okay? So, so Ahaz, uh, trusting God, uh, should have taken these three steps, but it didn't, okay? It should have taken these three steps. The first one is actually taking God's word as true and reliable to the point of living on it. Being like, okay, um, this is what God said, so I'm going to put myself in a situation where what God said better be true or else I'm in trouble. So it meant listening to Isaiah and trusting him. It would mean actually believing, not just cognitively, but with his life, that God's word was true and that when it showed up, it was reliable. Yeah, the second thing that Ahaz uh, would have to do is he would have to not trust his own plans. In fact, he would have to forsake his own plans that he constructed. He would have to kill his pact with Assyria because God said that it was not going to work and that ultimately it would lead to the exact opposite. It would lead to being invaded by them. Okay? And then third, he would have to wait. He'd have to wait. He'd have to wait to see how God would resolve this crisis, waiting for God to act instead of just taking matters 
into his own hands. Now, now view that through the lens of our own lives, okay? Through the lens of our own lives. Every day, we experience real situations where we can trust God. Real decisions, real hopes, real dreams, real anxieties, real choices. And, we've call, and, and we're called to trust God with those real things. But, but here's the deal. I've been around church people for long enough my whole life, really. I've been around church people for long enough to know that this reality hasn't sunk in for some, if not many, of us. Now, now, now faith or trust, it starts with believing that Jesus died for my sins to reconcile me, for, me, me to God, and he's the foundation of my relationship with God, and that God is now for me, yes, and, and I am part of his people, absolutely. It stops there, but it doesn't stop there. It actually continues on trusting Jesus with the real stuff in my life. You could put it this way. Real faith seeks to express itself by trusting God with real things. <clears throat> if you're bored in your walk of faith, if you're, if you're like, you know, I've been doing this Christian thing for a long time and it's actually kind of boring just going to church and, and going to even group, and, but honestly, it's a little bit boring. Well, the reason uh, why is because you haven't understood hope and trust and faith in this way. You've probably heard over and over again, trust Jesus to save you from your sin. Trust Jesus to save you from your sin. Trust Jesus to save you from your sin. And you're like, okay, okay, I got it, I got it. I'm trusting Jesus to save me from my sin. I'll trust him for that. But it may not have sunk into anything else in your life. Has your trust in God touched your relationships? your decisions, people who you love, people who drive you absolutely crazy? Has trusting in God influenced how you press into, press into your confusions about who he is and what his word says, the tensions of navigating life as a Christian? Has it influenced your disappointments? Has trusting in God worked its way into the real blessings that you experience in life? Often God will just give us blessing in life to see that, that if we're going to turn around and trust him to use that blessing how he would want to have us use it instead of him. You see, it, it's not always a crisis that we're called to trust God with, like, uh, like the crisis of us being at odds with him because of our sin. It, it can be a host of different things throughout our lives. It's not always a crisis. Sometimes God does use crisis, though. He'll use crisis and, and pain in, in the hopes that will bring us back into trusting him with real things like he did with Isaiah and the southern kingdom here. But it's not always that. Well, the question then is, well, how do we do that? How do we trust God with real things in our lives, okay? Well, we actually follow the same three things uh, that we just talked about that King Ahaz should have followed, okay? First, we start with God's word. We start with the clear instruction of God's word. And Isaiah actually points to this for his followers two times, not once, but twice. Whenever something is said twice in a passage, you pay attention to that. That, that's, how you, that's one tip for reading the Bible. You pay attention. Uh, the first one is in verse 16. This is when the voice switches from God speaking to Isaiah speaking. He says this, Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. He talks to his followers. Bind up the testimony and seal the teaching among my disciples. Well, what does that actually mean? Well, the, the word here is Torah. And that's the word that the, the Jews uh, learned to ascribe all of God's word for. 
that they call anything that God spoke special to them and narrative directives for how to live life, they called Torah. And so what Isaiah is saying is take the word of God and, and bind it up within yourselves. This way starts with taking the word of God and learning it and, and putting it in your heart and understanding it and reading it or even listening to it and putting it in your heart. He says it again in verse 20. He says, to the teaching and to the testimony, again, he's calling people to the word of God, okay? Um, and so the word is, is a rock and a foundation for the people of God. Now, there's plenty of situations in our lives, um, I'm not naive, that the word doesn't directly speak to. There's plenty of things about our modern day uh, culture, uh, 2,000, even 3,000 years later than some of the, these parts of the word, that are very, very different, very different expressions. Uh, they didn't have social media then, <laughs> so this word doesn't speak to your use of Facebook or Instagram or anything like that. <laughs> But it, you know what it does speak to? It does speak to vanity. It does speak to that. You know? And so there's, there's some ways in which we need to have discernment for how to use this word to speak to how we can live our lives. We're going to need discernment for that. Okay? Um, you, so many times in life you're going to be uh, presented with this. Two options. <laughs> so many times in life. Two options. One will lead to more life. One uh, will lead to more pain. And wisdom is really using the discernment on how to find out which one of these things we should pursue in life. And, and, and how do we get discernment? Well, part of it is knowing the word of God and applying it to our lives. <laughs> and, then some, and then it means so much as we'll often have to go against what we feel. We'll often have to go against what we want in order to, to stay in the lines of wisdom in the word, Okay. And so, so trusting God with real things starts with choosing to live as if the word of God is true, even if it doesn't feel very good right now. Choo choosing to believe as if this is true, even though it doesn't feel very good right now, okay? A couple examples, okay? Um, if God says that generosity with your, your money is good for your soul because he works through your giving to store up treasure in the kingdom of God um, and you get a raise... Well, then trust looks like actually choosing to be generous with what God has blessed you with. You see how this gets real? You see how we're trusting God? We're talking about real things here. Um, uh, God, uh, how, how about marriage? Uh, God says that in marriage, husbands are to love their wife as, as Christ loved the church, giving uh, himself up for her in order to display the glory of how much God loves his people. But if you love watching football or if you love uh, going on bike rides or if you love golfing or I'll put my own in there if you love playing chess tournaments I'm a nerd <laughs> and it's a problem and it's getting in the way of giving life to your family if it's taking your presence out of your family that they so desperately need to flourish well then trusting God with the real thing means cutting some of that out of your life see how it gets real see how it gets real all right, so that, that's the first thing. Longing and, longing and hope means, or that's the, uh, yeah. Yeah, longing and hope means that you trust God with the real things by looking at his word, okay? All right, the second thing is we need to forsake our own plans that aren't really in line with God's word or his promises, okay? Some of us are um, really good at getting to a place where we don't have to lean on God because we've always got a plan. Uh, I don't know who this could be. This is, this is me. Uh, very type A. Who, who loves lists? Who loves lists? 
that this might be you too, Finn, okay? If you love uh, lists uh, and plans, uh, you're probably really good at creating plans, and we have to be careful we don't create so many plans that we have eliminated areas where God can actually show up in our lives, okay? And then once we do that, uh, when the plans that we do have, we have to discern about, we have to discern which plans are helpful or not, okay? And then with the plans that we do have, we have to get to a place where we can say, um, I've got a plan, God, but I'm going to let your word speak fully to it. The opposite is to say, I've got a plan, God, and I'll go to your word and I'll find uh, in this word where it kind of affirms the parts of my plan that really work well. Uh, and those parts that, you know, they seem to speak against what my plan is all about. Well, those are just too difficult to understand. It was 2,000 years ago. That, I don't know if it's speaking exactly to me. Uh, this word that's translated this way, I know there's probably like a translation committee behind it that knows uh, the original languages of Greek and Hebrew far better than me, but you know, it probably just mean that. You see, you see, we actually submit our plans to the word and let the word speak into them and critique them, which is hard. It can really hit us hard and we'd be like, ooh, ouch. The word of God is calling me to trust him in this area of my plan, instead of the other way around of saying, word of God, get on board with my plan, okay? It works the other way around, okay? Okay, so that's the second thing. And then the third thing is when we trust God, we have to wait. And, and the, the results are often not immediate, right? Like, for Ahaz, trusting God meant just waiting, doing nothing, knowing that there are these two kingdoms that are sitting on his doorsteps about ready to raid it kill the people, take all of their things. Now, he could have looked at the word of God and been like, I have to make a plan. Obviously, this is good stewardship of me being a king of Israel. I have to make a plan to do that. But no, instead, we wait. We wait for God to act, okay? So we trust God's word. We let go of our plans. We submit our plans to the word of God. And then we wait to see how things pan out, okay? All right, so now that can seem scary. If that seems scary to you, I'm right there with you. That seems scary to me in parts of my life too, okay? But this is, what, this is why the Christian walk is always exciting. That's why I said that earlier. It's always exciting. There's always something else that you can trust God with. There's always another way that you can lean into God and you can wait for him to show up and you can see his power when it does. Is it scary? Is it nerve-wracking? Yes and yes. Is it exciting? Absolutely. Okay, there's always something else that's real in your life that you can look to, uh, to God to trust him for, okay? Now, um, these two ways include the outcomes of those ways, okay? The, the way of Ahaz and the way of, of um, Isaiah. There's the outcomes for longing in hope and uh, longing in, I guess we'll call it darkness, uh, longing in your own plans, okay? Um, and those outcomes are pretty cool. The first one, we'll talk about the, the outcomes for Isaiah's way. When we long in hope, what are the outcomes? The first one is that God becomes your sanctuary. God becomes your sanctuary. Um, pick it up with me in verse 11 again. Isaiah says, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And here's the outcome. Ready for it? And he will become a sanctuary. 
And then he goes on to say things that he will become for people who do not trust in him. But for those who do trust in him, he will become a sanctuary. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, the sanctuary is the place where God himself dwelled, both in the tabernacle and in the temple in ancient Israel. Okay, but it came to, to denote that place where the people of God could run to for refuge. The people of God could run there to get security. They could run there to get safety. They could run there to find peace. That is what God says he becomes for his people when they trust in him. Ahaz wanted to run to Assyria for that. We run to other things for that in our lives. But God says, no, if you want security, if you want comfort, if you want peace, run to me instead. I will be that for you. And this is uh, reiterated in the New Testament as well. Um, uh, uh, this is picked up, uh, the, Paul actually writes this in his second letter to the church in Corinth that he started. This is 2 Corinthians. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. See that? That's beautiful. You see, in waiting for God, it's, it's not always going to be easy. I mean, patience uh, is uh, that word translated patience in your Bible. It used to be translated in the, in the Old English. Does anybody know what it was? long-suffering. Waiting implies suffering of some sort, but God says that we, that, that he becomes our sanctuary when we wait upon him. And even then, in that suffering, we can experience joy in that. Many will look at Christians who are experiencing joy in light of huge loss and huge sufferings, and at best describe them as brainwashed, and at worst, they're lying. Right? Maybe you've heard this before. But no, what's actually happening is God has become their sanctuary. God has become their comfort. God has become their safety and security. So when Christians rejoice in the midst of their suffering, don't take God's glory away by saying they're brainwashed or lying. They're honestly experiencing this reality that God promises for them. It doesn't mean that there's also intense sadness and intense laments in those, when, when in suffering and loss too. Those, those often, that's often there too. But, but the fact that God becomes a sanctuary means that often we see both of things work in tandem, hand in hand, okay? All right. Um, second, uh, when you become uh, God's witness, and this is in verse 18, uh, the first one is that uh, God becomes your sanctuary. The second one is that uh, you become God's witness, you become God's witness. Verse 18 goes like this. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts. He's talking, Isaiah's talking about him and all the people who follow him. He's saying that they have become signs. What does that mean? They've become signs. Well, what it literally means is that they've become a witness as to that there's another way to live life. He goes on to contrast it with the other way to live life. There's a way to live life that involves trusting in God. And so as we go throughout um, our days with our real things, uh, it means trusting in, in God to advance your career instead of um, 
uh, maybe um, inflating your numbers, uh, kind of fudging things on your performance uh, reports and evaluations, or even brown nosing, I guess, excessive brown nosing. I think a little brown nosing is fine. Excessive brown nosing, you know. Uh, don't trust in that. Trust in God to advance your career. Trust in him to bless you with things that, that you can also turn around and trust him with again, okay? This is, uh, this is how we become witnesses for him. Now, to be fair, it, if we're going to remain faithful to this text, to Isaiah and his followers, they become signs and witness in trusting God, both in the things that they trust God with, the real things, and they spoke about it. Okay, so actually, both, like, Isaiah just got done talking to Ahaz, telling him that, that he's going to trust in God. I will wait and I will hope in the Lord, he says, you know? And this is what that's going to look like. And so to be, if we're going to be um, fair to Isaiah and we don't want to diminish his witness, the witness involves both acting and speaking. That, that, that's what this tells us, acting and speaking. It, it means saying, you know what, I'm not going to trust in that because um, I'm going to trust in, in God for this, as awkward as that may be. <laughs> there, there's a, a spoken word element to this witnessing. Okay? Cool. All right, and then we have the outcomes for um, we have the outcomes for not trusting in God, and there's really three of these outcomes for not trusting in God. Okay, and um, the first one is right there in verse 12. God says, "Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread." Here's the reality: when you start trusting in other things uh, for your viability all of a sudden, you have to keep your ear to the ground to make sure they're still viable. Ahaz, in leaning into trusting Assyria, actually was continually worrying that, one, Assyria would show up for him, and then, two, that when Assyria did show up for him, that uh, Assyria wasn't going to raid him. You see that? Uh, A couple examples would be... um, um, if you are looking at the stock market for your financial viability, what is that going to produce in you? Well, it means you're always going to be reading articles about anything that has to do with any volatility that could be created in the star- stock market, whether it be a trade war, cryptocurrency, the stocks you're invested in, anything. And, and you're doing this not necessarily because you're clever or you're really good at making a quick buck, but because you're actually trusting in them. And you're actually kind of controlled by them, actually. Okay? Um, uh, uh, Another example, um, if you're trusting in your looks for your relational viability with other people, then it's going to force you into evaluating all these other methods and conspiracies and fears regarding uh, uh, the newest diet out there, regarding the newest creams out there, regarding the newest surgeries out there, okay? And all of a sudden, you're going to have to be involved in leaning on those all the times instead of trusting in God for relational viability. How do all the lights are turning just off and on in here? I don't know what's going on. Sorry, guys. Um, Instead of relying on God for him to tell you how to be relationally viable, and that's primarily by looking to him and his love so that you can love other people in pretty remarkable ways. Who doesn't want to be a friend of someone who loves them in a great way? Okay? Okay. So those are two examples of that. Um, The second thing uh, that Isaiah says is that um, outcomes of not trusting in God, people who don't trust in God eventually um, turn into um, being offended by God himself. How do you know if maybe this is starting to creep into your life as if something terrible happens in your life and you get upset at God for it? Come on, God, really? God, where, where were you there? 
Why did you let this happen? Now, to be sure, there is a certain questioning uh, that is all that is very um, needed, uh, even appropriate during these times, but we need to make sure that we're not actually being offended by God and his word, that God is not off-putting to us, that we're not staying out of certain parts of our Bible because we know that they're going to offend us and they rub us the wrong way, okay? All right, and the third thing is, is a, a dissatisfaction that breeds, and we'll, we'll, we can watch it breed in verse 21. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged, and they will speak contemptuously against their king and their God, and turn their faces upward, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So not trusting in God leads to hunger. Things don't pan out, and we're People are dissatisfied by that. Ultimately, Israel and Ahaz is going to be very dissatisfied by trusting in Ahaz, okay? And that leads to a hunger dissatisfaction. And this is a metaphor that he's using. What comes when, when you're hungry? What's the next step? Hangries. Hangries. This happens every night in my house at 5.30. My daughters get exceptionally hangry, okay? Both at one another and at Christy and I. We, we just realize, oh, you just need food. We don't need to discipline this. You just need food, okay? You're hangry, okay? And that, that hanger uh, gets uh, poured out on their authorities, and then when it turns out that's not actually uh, bringing them the satisfaction that they want, then uh, they turn to despair. Hunger, to, to hanger, to, to contempt, to despair. Okay, so, so that's the, the third outcome of not trusting in God. But, but here's the deal. That, uh, I mean, it ends really dark there. They will be thrust into thick darkness, Oh, maybe that's you. Maybe you're in a dark place today. Maybe you're like, oh man, I've been despairing for a while and I'm in a dark place. It doesn't end here. This is only one section, okay? Pick it up with me in, in 9 verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, those are just other words for Israel, the northern and southern kingdoms. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness on them, a light has shown. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken them as on the, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Read, no more war. Here it is. This is the verse we read every Christmas. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, future reality language, will do this. This is the great hope that Isaiah had. 
This is the great hope that even though there is great darkness, that a light was going to come. A light was going to come and it was going to shine. And for all of those who had previously rebelled against the word of God, made their own plans in the world, refused to wait for God, they are going to get a chance to see the light of this beautiful king that did just those three things and be inspired to follow him. This is who Jesus is. Jesus is that light. He is that wonderful counselor. Okay? And, and so th this, there's incredible hope that's going on in here that is really in tangent with everything that Isaiah has spoken up to this point. We see a Jesus who shows up on the scene and trusts God with all of the real things, even his death. It's the biggest thing you can trust God for, right? God, God looks at, God, God the Father says to Jesus, hey, you're going to die, but it's all going to be okay. Jesus is like, okay. Wow, look at that. So here in this season of Advent, we look back on the death, the, the, the birth that Jesus lived, the, the life that he lived uh, of obedience to God, in all things, we look ahead to a time when he will come in full and be that king who will lead all of us in flourishing and in peace and in joy. And we, we, we long and hope towards that end by trusting him with real things. Let's pray. Father, um, we uh, thank you so much uh, right now for your word and how it guides us into truth. We thank you for your spirit and how um, he guides us into all truth as well, God. And I pray that uh, as your word has worked this morning and as your spirit has worked this morning, I pray our hearts would be um, receptive to that, that we would uh, humble our hearts before you, Lord, um, just as we do each and every uh, day and each and every week, God, that this action of trusting God uh, with trusting you with with all things, Lord, is something that is, is never over. And it's to this end that we consider who you are, that we might get a fresh glimpse of who Jesus is and who Jesus will be for us here on, on this earth and in the new heavens and the new earth, that we might trust you and lean into you in these ways, God. Um, I thank you for my friends, and God, I just pray that you would pour out a blessing upon them, God, as they go this week and in this season, God. Uh, we, we know that, that you are good and uh, that you love us, and so we pray that you would just make that manifest to us uh, this season. Pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.